because this is the final bit of quite a difficult letter. And uh, I think uh, you've been through a, a quite a, a few weeks of hard thinking about this one. Now we reach the bit at the end where Paul finishes everything off. So, Galatians 6, 11 says this. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And uh, this is the end of the whole letter. It's Paul's final thoughts. Um, and all we have to do, I think, is, is see how it connects back to everything he's said before. He's been writing in this letter in some haste, actually, because he needed to do it in a hurry. He'd just heard of a big problem that was there in some of the churches he'd planted in that area of, of uh, southern Galatia. He's written to them in a hurry to say, look, I know there have been people who've come to you and they've said they've come from Jerusalem and they've said they've got a more perfect gospel than I have, that the message I preached was not, was not really good enough and if you want to be real Christians, there are certain things you must do. One of those things being to be circumcised. And uh, that's all wrong. It's not right. You mustn't believe that because if you start saying there are two levels of Christians, there are those who are circumcised and keep all the Jewish laws, and the ones that might creep into the kingdom of heaven, but they're way down the food chain because, you know, they don't do everything right. If you think that, if you swallow that teaching, you are wrong. And we've seen in the last few weeks as we've gone through Galatians how uh, Paul expounds uh, all of, of, of the reasons for his saying that and says, look, this is absolutely critical. There is one way to God, and that reflects what Ray was saying a few minutes ago about Martin Luther, doesn't it? There is one way to God, and that is faith. One of the verses that really unlocked that for, for uh, Luther was the verse that says, the just shall live by faith. It's only your faith in Jesus makes you a Christian. It's not any ceremonies, it's not any practices, it's not anything you do to your body or anything like that. The only thing that makes you a Christian is that you, you go to him and you say, Jesus, I can do nothing for myself, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I climb. And Paul's made that clear right through the book. In chapter five, he started saying, now look, the marks of real Christianity are like this. The fruit of the spirit is nine different things that you develop in your life. And he talks also about the works of the flesh, of the old nature. He says, by implication, this is what's going on in those guys who are teaching the wrong message. They are trying to divide you and keep you apart from one another. But the fruit of the Spirit happens when people start coming together. Love, joy, peace, that kind of thing. 
So at the start of chapter 6, as you probably saw if you were there last time, and if you didn't, this is just to fill you in, he talks about all kinds of situations where we need to show that kind of love and acceptance of one another. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, he says, how do you, what do you do? Do you denounce him from the pulpit? Do you cut him out of the church? Or do you restore him gently? Yeah, that's what you do, because that's what Christians do. Carry each other's burdens. Don't look across the church and say, I don't like what she's doing. Whoa, look what he's up to. Don't compare yourself with other people, but carry those burdens. Help people get through them. Build the whole thing together. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he, he deceives himself. Don't build yourself up at the, the expense of other people. Rather, stand together. And uh, he says, don't be deceived because what you sow decides what you will reap. You go on with these guys who are trying to say there are two grades of Christianity and you will end up with split, divided Christians, disunity, uh, no relationship between Christians and the church. You develop the fruit of the Spirit and you will be quite different. So he says, right, here are my last few words now. And he starts with, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now, what does that mean? Presumably, most of the letters have been written by an amanuensis, which is a pop, posh Greek word for a secretary, and uh, that was the way that Paul normally wrote his letters, by dictating them while somebody else wrote them down. It's possible that they were redrafted after that. Read back to me what I've just said. No, 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 we need a different word there. And, and, and so they worked on it together. But the amanuensis was clearly an important part of putting it together. However, to make sure that people knew the letters came from Paul, there's internal evidence in some of the letters that he always used to add the last bit by himself. And so that's what he's doing here. But why does he say, why, why is he writing in large letters? Well, there are lots of theories about it. One of the simplest is that Paul had eye problems, that he couldn't see very well. And uh, that was referred to this morning, if you remember the, the canon from Durham Cathedral talked about the physical difficulties that Paul had, that Luke had to patch up for him as he went on his, his trust. And one of those things possibly was glaucoma, something like that, a difficulty of seeing perfectly. But I don't think he would draw attention to that here at this point. There didn't seem much point in doing that. Oh, by the way, I'm not feeling very well this week. This is not the point at which to say something like that, really, is it? So I don't think that's the answer. Other people have said, oh, maybe he just wasn't very good at writing. You know, because he used a, a secretary all the time. Maybe when he got to the end, this is from Paul. You know, he was writing in big letters because he just wasn't that good. I don't think that's the case either. He'd been a Pharisee for years. He'd been a scribe. He'd worked through the universities. One of the last letters we have from him says, fetch my scrolls. He was a guy who used scrolls all the time. I think he knew how to write fine. Um, it is true that most of what he wrote would have been in Hebrew, and that's a completely different alphabet to the Greek alphabet. So people say, well, maybe he just wasn't good at writing Greek. But then in his culture, everybody wrote in Greek because it was the lingua franca. It was the, the, the one language that everybody spoke around the ancient world. Um, so I don't think any of those theories hold together. John Stott, in his uh, commentary about the message of Galatians, says this. Most commentators consider that he used large letters deliberately, either because he was treating his readers like children, rebuking their spiritual immaturity by using baby writing. I don't think I know about that either. I think that's just insulting to people. I don't think Paul would do something like that. Or simply for emphasis, much as we would use capital letters or underlined words today. Because you do that, don't you? 
Yesterday, I was coming through various airports. In fact, this, this PowerPoint presentation started off in Munich Airport, was continued in, in, in Amsterdam at Sippel Airport, and uh, it was finished on the bus coming down from Bristol Airport. So it had an interesting career, this, this PowerPoint. And everywhere you go through an airport, you see these big signs all over the place, attention! Coronavirus alert! Do not walk down here! <laughs> You've got so many signs, you're going to miss some of them, obviously. And so to make sure you don't miss the really big ones, they put them in big letters that you cannot possibly miss. Do not go in here unless... You know. and, and, and the big letters say, this is really important. Conversely, sometimes when you want to spill in details, you put them in small print, don't you? <laughs> That's why it's legal agreement. You've got to read right down to the bottom of the page. Otherwise, you can miss all sorts of stuff. In, I remember there was a computer shop in Exeter a few years ago. It was part of a nationwide games workshop chain uh, selling computer games. And just because they got fed up with people ticking boxes to say, oh, I've read all the terms and conditions, and not actually having read them, they put a little bit in the small print in the terms and conditions. It says, I consent to sell my soul to the devil, and <laughs> I will never get it back. <laughs> and then they, they put it on the website after about 20,000 people had signed that without reading it. Uh, look, this is why you shouldn't read the terms and conditions. So anything in small print is something you want to smuggle in. But anything in big print you really want people to pay attention to. And that, it seems to me, is what Paul's doing here. J.B. Phillips, who was one of the first people to translate the New Testament into a readable modern English version, said this, according to centuries-old Eastern usage, this verse could easily mean, note how heavily I have pressed upon the pen in writing this. Hmm. Thus it could be translated, notice how heavily I underlined these words for you. So what Paul is saying here is what he really wants people to hear. This is the heart of the message he wants them to take away from Galatians, whatever it is. So does he stress right at the end just to make sure they've got it? I think there are three things. First of all, the motives of the troublemakers. These guys who've come in preaching a different message. What's really behind them? What are they all about? Is it money? Is it power? Is it that they really believe what they're teaching? What are their motives? Then he talks about the mindset of the cross. You know, if you are not believing what they are believing, if you say, like Paul, all I'm concerned about is the cross of Jesus, what does that imply about the way you think, about what matters to you when you get up in the morning, about what you do when you have to make choices in your daily life, about how you relate to the next-door neighbour or the boss or, or whoever it happens to be? What's the mindset of the cross? And the third thing he wants to stress, I think, are the marks of the Lord Jesus. And this is where you get that rather strange verse at the end that says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Well, let's look at those three things then, and I think we'll just about have unpacked what he's trying to say at the end of Galatians. First of all, you've got the motives of the troublemakers. Why are these people coming into your midst and spreading a message and saying, Paul is wrong, what he's been teaching you, well, it's all right, but that's baby Christianity. We're going to give you the real stuff. This is the hard stuff. Some of you people won't be able to take this. Others of you, well, you will be, but only if you follow us to the letter. What are they really trying to do? They're coming in and saying, faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to keep the whole Jewish law as well. All of the customs, all of the physical activities that mark you out as a Jew, that's got to be there. Otherwise, you are not a super Christian like us. Well, Paul says three things. First of all, he says they're building a reputation for themselves. 
Those who uh, want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They want to make a good impression outwardly. They want other people to look at them and say, wow, look at that. They want to send out a, a prayer letter every month saying, please give generously. We saw 6,000 people who consent to be circumcised here and 5,000 who started observing the Jewish food laws there. You know, they want to build a reputation for themselves. And it's about them. It's not about the truth at all. And you will find, sadly, in the religious world, there are people all over the place who are using tiny points of doctrine or things that they themselves have misinterpreted and twisted in some kind of way to make themselves look big. You just need to look at some of the supposedly Christian websites that you find on the internet and you find how much of that there is around. We shouldn't be surprised because Christianity has always been a great ladder to success for people down through the centuries. And lots of people will take it and twist it if they really want to be big. But the mark of a real Christian disciple is that reputation doesn't matter that much. That acclaim and success and lots of people saying you're wonderful is not at all what it's about. And you know, the people I've known who've been the greatest servants of Jesus Christ have been some of the most humble and unassuming people you can imagine. I think of people like Victor Jack, the county's evangelist in Suffolk, who was in charge of the Billy Graham uh, mission publicity and, uh, uh, and organization the last time Billy Graham preached a, a, a major nationwide mission in this country. And it had to be Victor in that area because he was Mr. East Anglia. I mean, he had worked so hard in small churches all over the region. He'd, he'd given himself and driven himself so hard for the sake of the gospel. Everybody loved him. Everybody trusted him. He was the only person to choose as chairman. I remember when the mission was over and a book came out about the, the, the things that had been done in it. There was a whole page of pictures of people who had been the different area um, superintendents and, and, and organizers and directors and so on. And I'm not saying anything about any of the others who were no doubt wonderful men as well. <laughs> but most of them were sitting there in their suits in their offices looking quite important. You know, I'm, I'm in charge of the Billy Graham mission, my you know, I'm, I'm an important Christian. And the only picture they could get of Victor was of him sweeping out the stand, stripped to the waist at Portman Road football ground in, in Ipswich, where the, the, the mission had been. He was clearing up afterwards. And the contrast on that page, between all these guys in suits and ties and stuff like that, and Victor, stripped to the waist, just doing the job, said it all about his ministry. Yeah. You know, the true servant of the Lord is humble and unassuming and doesn't do it for the bright lights and the applause. So, building a reputation was the first thing about the troublemakers, and you wanted people to notice that. Don't be impressed by other people's attempts to build themselves up, because you've got to ask where it's coming from. The second thing they were doing was dodging guilt, because he says, you know, even these people, they preach a fantastic message about you've got to be proper Jews. If you're, if you're Christian, you've got to be a Jew as well. You have to take on the full weight of all the things that the Jews have done down through the centuries, because that's what God expects from his people. And Paul says, you know what? They don't even do that themselves. They don't even keep the full law. They're living a double hypocritical life. So why are they saying this to other people? You must do this, you must do that, you must do the other thing. Often it's because they're dodging the guilt of what they're not doing in their own lives. And sometimes you've got to face it. We proclaim, we, we um, denounce furiously those sins that we are most tempted to ourselves. 
because we recognize the temptation in us, we furiously denounce it in others. I remember when um, I had uh, left a, a church in another city to come down to work in Exeter, um, a, a full-time worker was appointed in my old church who was a rather strange character. And he used to preach every week about purity, about singleness of motive, about staying well away from any kind of moral impurity or dirt or anything like that. And he just did it again and again and again. And, you know, within a year, he had to leave the church in disgrace because he had seduced uh, one of the girls who was supposed to be working with him from the congregation. And it turned out when you looked at his past life, it was a pretty dubious moral record. He was fighting with things he couldn't control in his own personal life. And as a result, he denounced them all the time, but his own life was a mess and a sham. It's possible to dodge the guilt you feel for not living up to a standard by just proclaiming that standard for other people too. And Paul says that's what's going on. Third thing is for avoiding trouble. And this, he says, this is the main thing. Because he says the only reason they're doing this, the rock bottom reason, if you get down to the bottom of their motives, the reason that they're doing this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, it just makes an easy life for them. They're, they don't have to stand out against the Jews on the one hand or the authorities on the other. It's difficult, wasn't it? Because the, the Jews uh, who were not Christians would look at people in Galatia in their communities and say, you're Gentiles, you can't possibly have a Jewish Messiah without being Jewish as well. If you people got circumcised, if you people started eating kosher food, then we might believe that you're real Jews and followers of Jesus, but you can't be. And so the Jews would persecute them as folks who weren't really them. On the other hand, the Gentiles <laughs> would look at these people and say, but, you know, you're not Jewish. You don't do all the Jewish stuff. So why do you believe in a Jewish Messiah? Why aren't you worshipping the emperor anymore? Why aren't you doing the things that you used to do with us? You don't come to the idol feasts and stuff like that. You don't do that anymore. But you're not properly Jewish. So what are you? And so... As a Christian and a Gentile who wasn't circumcised, you could be persecuted right, left, and center by people who just did not understand what you were about. And you avoid all of that very neatly if you become a Jew, a rather unusual Jew, a Jew with a Messiah, but still a Jew. And it's because they wanted an easy life, because they weren't prepared to take on the difficulty of following Jesus in a new way, based simply and purely on faith. That's why those people... Uh, were preaching what they were doing. So Paul says all of these motives are wrong and recognize them when you see them, he said. If you're going to be a Christian who goes on growing in your faith, you have to recognize when you're hearing the false voices, the wrong teachers, the people who would mislead you. Look at their motives. Look at what they're doing it for. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives or do you see sham and hypocrisy? The second thing is the mindset of the cross. Because Paul goes on, doesn't he, to say, God for, uh, forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, that I should take my identity from anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, I think, again, there are three things here. First of all, there's a new priority. He talks about, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. What's he talking about? 
Well, when you're crucified, within a very short space of time, you're dead. <laughs> and dead people are unresponsive to the world they used to live in. If, for example, I decided I'd had enough of Jonathan down here and suddenly leapt on him uh, from the, the pulpit and started beating him around the head, and uh, you were just standing back aghast, obviously, or uh, I was cheering me on. Oh, I don't know. But anyway, uh, Jonathan's dead, lying there down on the floor, and you come up and try and have a conversation with him. You're not going to get very far, are you? Hello, Jonathan. Are you all right? I'm not looking very well. Um, did you fall down there, or did somebody push you down? Why don't you talk to me? You get... You get a real shock, wouldn't you? Suddenly, suddenly, it's a big come on, dead, stupid. <laughs> but dead people do not communicate. They're out of the world they used to live in. And so if you've been crucified to the world, it means that um, you just don't respond anymore. The, the, the things out in the world that used to impel you, to push you, to draw you, to tempt you, to entice you, they don't have the same impact on you. Oh, sure, you can sometimes feel the temptation hot and strong, but you've got a power now to stand out against it and just not say anything, not give in. You don't have to be pushed around by the forces of, of, of sinful desires in your life. It doesn't have to happen at all. And similarly, the world is crucified to you. You are crucified to the world. It means that the world doesn't understand you either. It can't get through to you in the same way. There is now a barrier between you and the world you used to live in, and that's caused by the cross. Because the cross has taken you out of one set of priorities into another. And your new priority is not to follow all of those things the world uh, pushes at you, the things that used to fill your life. Your priority is set on following Jesus Christ and doing what he wants. New priority. And that priority would be impossible to live out because you're just not strong enough unless there was also a new power. And so Paul says circumcision doesn't count for anything uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. It's all completely beside the point. What counts is a new creation. If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. An old life has passed away, a new life has come. And all this is done by God. You can't do that for yourself. You can't turn yourself into something that you aren't. You can't reinvent yourself. All you can do is allow the transforming power of Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sin, to give you a new ability to live, can let you live on a new level that you never knew you could before. And that's what the gospel promises, isn't it? Not just forgiveness for your past sins, but power to deal with your life here and now so that sin might, might never have dominion over you again, but you can live a life in the power of God that's just on a completely new level. So there's a new power. And the third thing here, I think, is a new people. You're part of a new family as well. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What counts as a new creation? Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. And so Paul says the church is the Israel of God. A new Israel. Yeah, there are plenty of Jewish people in it. And they're still part of Israel, but in a new way since Jesus has died and risen again. And non-Jews are part of this Israel as well. And they all belong together. And it's not just that you have to live out this new life in the power all by yourself. It's that you've got a whole new family there. And you're a new people. And Paul says that's what really counts. That's a far bigger vision 
than the one these guys are trying to implant. You know, don't do this and don't do that and get this to happen to your body and don't do this on certain dates. That's just confining you in a whole code of laws that you don't need to be uh, worried about. It's neither uncircumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing is this new creation that binds you together with other people in a new people. The cross, to be to glory in the cross, that was a very weird idea in Paul's day. Because uh, Roman citizens wouldn't even talk about the, the, the cross. It was just impolite. It was kind of like saying, oh, I'm just going off to the toilet. And do you want to know what I'm going to do there? You wouldn't do that, would you? You don't talk about it. And uh, Cicero, who lived uh, in, from 106 BC to 43 BC, uh, a few years before Jesus, uh, said in one of his most famous speeches, he was a great uh, Roman lawyer, the executioner, the veiling of heads, the very word cross. Let them all be far removed, not only from the body of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. In other words, you don't talk about the cross because it's just, it's just impolite to do so. And F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, that great New Testament scholar and historian of a few years ago, said the word crux, that's the Latin word for cross, the word crux was unmentionable in white Roman society. Even when one was condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used was an archaic formula which served as sort of an unlucky euphemism. What that means is kind of like saying, I'm just going to the little boy's room instead of saying, I'm going to the toilet. It was something you said just to, to uh, you know, boss over something that was rather unpleasant. Arbori in feliki suspendito, hang him on the unlucky tree. <laughs> Uh, oh yes, my brother came to a sticky end. I'm afraid they hung him on the um, unlucky tree, if you know what I mean. I go, ooh, ooh, yes, yes, let's not think about that. Yeah? That was the way it was. And for Paul to not only say the word crooks, but also to glory in it, that was crazy as far as the Romans were concerned. But that's the way that it is for Christians. The most glorious thing in your life, if you're a Christian, is that instrument of cruel torture. Because it's the, it's the evidence of a love that was prepared to go right to the limit and beyond for you and me. It's the evidence of a defeated enemy. Because the cross slew the power of death. And Jesus, by dying, made the resurrection possible. And so Isaac Watts wrote that hymn that we sang already tonight. Well, actually, we, we, we sang three verses of it. And the three verses we sang are the ones that don't stress its connection, actually, to this passage, which is interesting. You can see, that's Isaac Watts, and that was the first edition of the, 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 the hymn. And you can see he's headlined it, Crucifixion to the World by the Cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14. And the whole hymn is based on Galatians 6.14. You, you don't see that very clearly, um, uh, in the way in which we sing it nowadays. We only sang three verses, but normally people sing four, don't they? They also get verse two, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. That is pure Galatians 6, isn't it? And the other verse is interesting. You see, there are five verses, not four verses to this hymn. And uh, from the first edition, one or two changes have been made. I mean, I really like the uh, first two lines in the original here. When I survey the wondrous cross, where the young prince of glory died. I think that just adds something to it, which is fantastic. Jesus wasn't an old guy. Jesus hadn't lived for years and years before this. He was the young prince of glory. And there are other changes, as you can see, in, in the, the hymn. But the important thing is the verse that people have missed out since. 
And again, this is one of the ones that based itself very clearly on Galatians 6, 14. Uh, it's, not, it's not great poetry, which is probably why people don't sing it uh, so much, but it, it does say something. It issues a challenge that I think is important in the middle of that hymn. His dying crimson, that's his blood, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. And that was the message of the hymn for Isaac Watts. It demands my soul, my life, my all, this tremendous experience of the cross. That's the important thing. So, we reach the last bit anyway. You'll be glad to hear, especially if you're young. And uh, this is the marks of the Lord Jesus. This is what uh, comes at the end of it. When suddenly he says at the end of it, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word that's used, only time this word is used in the whole Bible, by the way, is the Greek word stigmata. Oh, stigmata. Isn't that what happens when, you know, just before Easter, people go into a sort of funny state and the, the, the marks of the wounds of Jesus are on the palms of their hands, you know, the marks of the nail prints. And yes, that is right. People do get that sometimes, that uh, the marks of uh, the crucifixion will appear on their palms of their hands. Incidentally, um, it's, it's not a miracle from God. It's a psychological phenomenon. And the reason we know that is because Jesus wasn't nailed through the palms of his hands. Nobody ever does. I mean, oof, it's a horrible thing to think about, but if you nail somebody through the palms of their hands, ugh, it's going to rip out like that straight away. But if you're a sophisticated Roman executioner, you will know that there are bones that cross down about there, and if you can get the nail right in the middle of it, I'm sorry about this before supper time, but there you go, um, and get the nail right in the middle there, then the body will hang on where those two bones join. And that's where the real marks of crucifixion would have been. So all these people who have stigmata on their hands, mm, forget it. It's just uh, psychological and uh, um, a, a psychosomatic phenomenon where the same thing appears in the body. Stigmata. That word was really used in Roman days for the kind of thing that might happen to slaves who had run away. Do you remember Onesimus who ran away from his master Philemon? And Paul uh, came into contact with him. Uh, he was converted and the whole letter of Philemon in the New Testament is about Paul sending him back to his slave master owner. Well, what should have happened to him is something like this. He had been branded for the rest of his life on his forehead. It probably wouldn't have been the whole word, fugitivus, that you can see there. That's a 20th century reconstruction, or 21st, I don't know. But uh, actually, what would usually happen was the letters F, V, G. And that stood for fugitivus, which meant somebody who had run away from his master. If it was F-V-R, that was fure, which meant this guy is a thief. But either way, you are branded for life. And it wouldn't matter if you lived for another 50 years and never did anything wrong again. You would still have that branding, and everybody who saw you would know exactly who you were. And so that's the kind of idea that Paul's got here. On my body, I have marks which show for the rest of my life just how much I have given to Jesus in gratitude for the cross and the resurrection. And as uh, W.M. Ramsey, whom I quoted this morning, is a good guy because he's a Scotsman, uh, Ramsey said this, the marks that branded Paul as a slave of Jesus were the deep cuts of the lictors' rods of Pisidia Antioch and the stones of Lystra. He'd been whipped unmercifully, the 40 lashes minus one, in Pisidian Antioch. You have to remember a long way back in our Acts series, if you remember that one. But that's what happened there. 
And then when he went to Lystra, and uh, uh, they decided they didn't like him after all. They stoned him and left him as if he, uh, because they thought he was dead. And somehow he got back from that. But he must have borne those marks for ages and ages afterwards. Well, probably for the rest of his life. And so when he wrote to the Galatians, not long after that, he could say, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. There were lots of more marks to come. <laughs> in Ephesus, for example, where it would appear he was tortured. All that he says about that experience was it was like fighting wild beasts in the arena. So it was obviously something pretty horrible. All of those prison experiences in Philippi and places like that. Oh, Paul had plenty marks on his body by the time he reached the end of his life to show that he was a follower of Jesus. And what he's saying in this verse is, well, it's translated finally in my New International Version, but that phrase in Greek can also mean from now on. And I think that's probably a better translation. Because what has been happening up until now is his false teachers been making lots of trouble for Paul. And all sorts of people have been arguing and disputing about what they said. And I think he's saying, listen, you've heard what I've got to say now. From now on, let's not have any more of this trouble. Please just drop it and focus on what's important. And trust my word because I bear the marks. <laughs> I'm not some smooth-talking guy who wants to get you circumcised because he wants to make a fair show and gain a reputation. I'm not somebody who wants to avoid trouble at all costs, so I twist the Christian gospel to mean something different. I've been right through it, and I bear the marks. Now, you and I, obviously, are unlikely to be able to say the same thing in our lifetime. There are Christians who have that kind of thing as a result of their service to Jesus. You think of people like Richard Vorenbrandt and other Christians in Romania and the Soviet Union who went through... Ah, scourges and whipping and tortures and uh, electronic uh, stuff that have left them scarred for life because of what they've, they've gone up through for the sake of Jesus Christ. You think of people like Minorities Minister Bhatti in Pakistan who stood up not just for Christians but for Buddhists and Hindus and anybody else who wasn't very welcome in a Pakistani country and who knew before he was assassinated that that was going to happen to him who left a tape behind saying, my master went the way of the cross and I must be prepared to go that way too. And so one morning after a meeting with his spiritual advisor in which they read the Bible and prayed together, he got into his, his uh, official car to be taken round to the embassy. On the way, it was stopped in the street. He was sprayed with bullets. And that corpse in the back of the car bore the marks of the Lord Jesus. I think of Ruth in my own church in Exeter who went to India as a missionary contracted a stomach complaint which could have been very easily sorted out but because of the place she was uh, it was impossible for her to get the proper medical treatment and so for the rest of her life she won't be able to eat some food she won't be able to, to, to live a full proper life and she gets very exhausted very quickly those are the marks of the Lord Jesus too in that sense and for you and me perhaps it will never be that kind of physical price we pay to demonstrate our gratitude to the Lord Jesus. But there are other ways of um, experiencing the marks of Jesus in all of our lifestyles. This is uh, Albert Barnes. I remember when I was a teenager, my father was clearing out his books one day and he said, Dad, I've got six volumes here I don't really use anymore. You have them. And he gave me Barnes notes on the New Testament. <laughs> well, it was a lot simpler than a lot of the books on his bookshelf. And I actually got quite a bit out of those as I started to study the Bible myself as a teenager. 
And Barnes notes have since found um, have been one of the biggest sellers all over the world because he was good at explaining. Well, he did a series on the New Testament. He did the Old Testament as well. And uh, it's all pretty old-fashioned stuff. You can see that either he's very cool or he's uh, from a long way back, judging by his hairstyle. And uh, it's not that he's very cool. Uh, he was born in 1798. And uh, he wrote these notes throughout his life. And, and, and on the passage, he's got some interesting things to say. What he says here is this. By a holy life, by self-denial, by subdued animal affections, by zeal in the cause of truth, by an imitation of the Lord Jesus, and by the marks of suffering in our body, if we should be called to it, let us have some evidence that we are his, and be able to say when we look on death and eternity, we bear with us the evidence that we belong to the Son of God. And he says, if that happens to you, if in your character and your personality, if in your reactions to the rest of the world, if in the way you choose to spend your time and your money, there is evidence that you have given up belonging to the world so that Jesus Christ can renew you and give you a whole new life, then, he says, to us, that will be of more value than any ribbon or star indicating elevated rank, more valuable than a ducal coronet, more valuable than the brightest jewel that ever sparkled on the brow of royalty. So that's it. Just a few words at the end of a letter, written in very large letters, centuries ago. But I think for our life, now, they pose three big questions that we need to tangle with as we look back over Galatians and what we've learned from it. Here are your three questions. First of all, what are the motives of the people I follow? And what are my own? Why do I make the choices I do? How do I live as a Christian? For what reason? Second, what's my mindset in living as a Christian? Is it shaped by the cross or is it shaped by the same pressures as everybody else faces and the same priorities that they have in life? And third, where are the marks of the Lord Jesus in my life? Don't be too hard on yourself because in my experience, other people will notice them before you do. But am I con concerned that those marks should be there Am I living my life in the shadow of the cross in such a way that people can see in me the glory of the resurrection? That's the big question, isn't it? Let's just pray for a second and our service is over. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that Paul wrote in a hurry and in painfully big letters to the Galatians all of those years ago. Thank you that all over the world those few words have made such a massive impact. We think of the writing of that hymn by Isaac Watts and the way that's just resounded around the planet for, oh, well over 200 years now. And these words have been such a challenge to so many people since they were first scribbled down. We pray that their power will continue to attack our lives in all the places they need to be attacked. will continue to give us inspiration and hope. And right now, we'll send us out into next week with the right motives, the right mindset. And at the end of the week, marks appearing in our lives in greater and more obvious clarity that show we belong to the Lord Jesus and nobody else. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and evermore. Amen. <laughs>